Welcome, everyone, to part eight of the Nolan Countdown miniseries. On this week's episode, the Countdown Gang will be continuing through Christopher Nolan's filmography with 2012's conclusion to the Dark Knight trilogy, The Dark Knight Rises. Before we get into that, however, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you doing today? I'm good, Scott. Um, although I thought we agreed that we were just going to talk in Bane voices for the whole episode, so I don't know why why you started off like this and not with a you know a, let the games begin or something. Don't worry, like I'll be I'll be editing um, it in post. I'll be editing all of our voices in post. Okay, good, good. <laughs> then I, I was worried about you know having to do basically uh, a muffled version of Sean Connery for this whole thing, but uh, no, I, I, I'm doing well, Scott. Um, you know, still still crazy times here, but um, was interested to see how i would feel about catching up with this film because it has been several years and yeah definitely have some some thoughts about it that uh i, I can't wait to get to yeah jay how are you doing you holding up it doesn't matter how i am what matters is my plan i'm uh wow i know right i'm uh i'm good um sorry you want to cut this and just restart should we just restart <laughs> <laughs> i um I'm all right. I hadn't. I actually had seen this movie fairly recently. I feel like in the last year, year and a half. Um, but you know, still was excited and a little apprehensive to rewatch it. You know, with the idea of having to critique and give us give it a score. And uh, I'm happy with the way things turned out. So, well, why, like on that on that note, why don't we just go ahead and and jump right in? Taking place a whopping eight years. After the events of The Dark Knight, Nolan's third and final Batman film starts with relative peace in Gotham. Gary Oldman's Commissioner Jim Gordon and Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne have kept Harvey Dent's fall from grace a secret from the general public. In the wake of the secret, Gotham has passed the Dent Act, which has all but eradicated organized crime in the city. And the now maligned vigilante Batman has disappeared. Now suffering from the physical punishment he endured during his time as the caped crusader, Bruce Wayne has become a recluse and requires a cane to walk and rarely ever makes a public appearance. Things may not be peaceful for long, however, as Bruce catches Selina Kyle, played by Anne Hathaway, in the act of stealing his mother's pearl necklace. Selina escapes easily enough due to Bruce's near handicapped state, but Bruce quickly surmises that it wasn't the pearls she was after, it was his fingerprints. After tracking the cat burglar down, Selina warns Bruce that a storm is coming. That storm is Bane, played menacingly by Tom Hardy, who is the new leader of the League of Shadows and is hellbent on completing Ra's al Ghul's mission of destroying Gotham. To stop Gotham's destruction, Bruce will need to don the mask one more time and hopefully join forces with newcomers and old allies alike while also coming to terms with his past choices and actions. As the follow-up to The Dark Knight and the finale of Chris Nolan's Batman trilogy, there was understandably high expectations when this film released, but eight years and likely multiple watches later, I'd love to hear what your expectations were going into this particular rewatch. You already started to kind of give what those expectations were. Jay, we'll start with you first. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were a little all over the place, and I think that's because, depending on when you catch me, um, you know, I, I might have my, my critics hat on tighter or looser, I guess, in that, you know, and, you know, we'll, we'll get into the reasons why, but essentially, I remember this movie asking a lot of me in terms of, like, suspending disbelief and just ignoring certain plot holes, um, again, which, which I'm sure we'll get into, but so, I, you know, I wasn't 
sure, you know, after a little bit of time has passed since my last viewing, whether I was going to come down harder on that or if I was going to, you know, remember some of the fonder moments of the movie. So, you know, I, I came in thinking that my score for this movie, you know, however limited my box normally is, you know, this score might vary by like a point, point and a half, depending on, you know, the mood in which I watched it. Yeah, well, I'll be interested to hear where you ended up landing by the end of the episode. But Scott, what about your expectations? Yeah, I mean, so this is the only one of the trilogy that I actually saw in theater. So I definitely have memories of, of seeing this from, from the beginning. Um, and I remember really, really liking it when I saw it in theaters. And actually, you know, it, it was actually one of the first movies where, I mean, we're, we're all dudes here. So there was all a, a time when we were like teenagers and it was like, we can't show emotion, right? Any sign of emotion is weakness or whatever. But this was like one of the first movies where I can remember, like at the end of the movie, I was like getting a little bit emotional, like at, you know, in the, in the final few moments of this movie. Um, and so, so that, that part of the experience has, has always stuck with me, but yeah, I think I've maybe watched it once or twice since it came out, but it had been several years. And, you know, in that time, I'd kind of come to understand maybe more what the consensus about this movie was um, and that it is, the weakest of the trilogy, according to a, a lot of people and that a lot of people feel it's just not even that good, that good of a movie. Um, and so I was interested to see now that I am firmly in like, like, like Jay, Jay uses the phrase cr uh, critics hat. I, I like can't take it off really that much anymore because of, uh, you know, how, how deeply we are, we are into this now, Scott. And so I was interested to see now coming at it with the knowledge that hey, people don't really like this this movie, or you know, there there is a subset of people who who aren't huge fans of this. Am I going to see stuff in it that I didn't see before? Um, and so that was kind of what I brought into it. Yeah, it, it's interesting that that is the that that's the consensus that you're coming to just from you know looking taking a look around and and film Twitter, film series, et cetera. Because at the time, I think it, it was the second best reviewed movie, right? It's a, it has an eighty on Metacritic. It at has the ninety yeah. percent on Rotten Tomatoes. But I I think that at least from what I can tell, I, I think that you're also right with talking about how I think people's uh, perspectives on the, on this film have, have come down a little bit over the years. And, and so I think sharing some of your concerns gotten, and also some of yours, Jay, when I'm revisiting this film, I think the last time I probably watched this was in 2013, uh, which was quite a while ago. I think it was like right after it came out on, on DVD, I watched it a couple more times after seeing it in theaters um, and haven't really picked it up since. And I thought that this was going to be one of the lesser, you know, Chris Nolan movies we've watched definitely the the least uh, of the trilogy. I don't want to say uh, bad because uh, look, guys, uh, Chris Nolan is Chris Nolan to me. I mean, uh, I think almost almost all of his movies are fantastic. And uh, but I, I was, I, I guess, I had some hesitant expectations as well. I think that um, I thought this was going to come out near the bottom of my list of the ones we'd watched so far, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I won't spoil where where I end up yet. But Jay, why don't we go back to you with those expectations around? All right. It could be anywhere from I'm just making numbers up, but it could be anywhere from like an eight to like a nine point five to you. I again made those numbers up, but like that is what, J scale. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. actually, yeah, that was probably about it. Well, I'm curious then. So, so with those expectations and, and kind of uncertainty going into the film, where did you land and, and what did you think of this rewatch? So, when I when I watch these movies for the countdown, just for a little bit of context, you know, I I'm typically jotting notes down, right? Just like things I really like or didn't like, whatever. Um. And I'm, I'm going to take this weird tangent, but I promise you it has a point. Um, for those yeah, of you that it's better if it doesn't, and then you just come back and start answering my question like five minutes from now. Sure. Um, 
Uh, for those of you football fans out there, if you can remember the Patriots-Falcons Super Bowl, the 28-3 comeback game, I remember reading uh, one sports writer's like account of that night where he was writing the story of the Super Bowl as it was taking place. So, you know, by the time it gets to 28 to three, he's writing about how the Patriots choked and how you know poorly they played and blah, blah, blah. And then as the rest of the game goes on, he's like amending the end of the article and then the middle. And by the end, he has to throw it out because what's happened at the end is like completely different. And the reason I bring this up is I would say the first hour of the movie, I think I was kind of like, you know, they had me in the first half where I was just like, you know, I, I was writing all these like, you know, things down or I was going to like poke holes in and it was just like, this movie asks so much of you, blah, 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 blah. And then the second half of the movie happened and I, I threw it all away. And I was like, you know what? I actually really enjoy this movie. Like it still has its problems and, you know, we'll address them. But like, I, I can't even like pretend to, that I wasn't like, you know, grinning ear to ear multiple times in the second half of this movie. Uh, I really enjoyed my rewatch more than I thought I would. Yeah. Scott, what about you with all your hesitancies coming into the film? Where did you end up? Yeah, I mean, this might be a, I mean, this is a bold, bold stance to, to take here, I guess. But I think this movie is almost as good as The Dark Knight. Um, that is is my take after watching it. Not only did I not like it less, like maybe I was expecting, I think I even liked it more than when I originally saw it. I think this is a phenomenal uh, movie and a phenomenal conclusion. I mean, really on the same on the same level as Endgame for me in terms of how satisfying it is a conclusion to this franchise story arc. And I know that that's gonna be blasphemy to the two of y'all probably, but uh, I think maybe I had at the time and even still I had the relationship with this trilogy of films that y'all have had over the years with with all of the MCU films. Obviously, I've talked before about how I, you know, have been sort of hot and cold with in terms of how uh, into the MCU I am at various times. So while I, I loved Endgame, I, I didn't hit. I mean, as hard as it did for the two of y'all who have been there the whole time, I think. But as for this movie, I think it is an incredible achievement. And I think that he he finds a way to sort of, even though it has been eight years, right? He picks up on that little, we talked about when we talked about The Dark Knight, about how there is this one little thread of hope that is out there, right? After The Dark Knight, the fact that the the people on the on the ships do not blow each other up. That is like the, the shred of hope that is, uh, still left in Gotham, that maybe the people uh, of Gotham can overcome the, their legacy of, of darkness that has surrounded the city. And I think that's what this movie is about, right? Like th this movie doesn't have the the moral complexity of The Dark Knight. It isn't, you know, about all of these questions of, you know, what is a hero? What is a villain? How do we become a hero? How do we become a villain? Stuff like that. Like these big sort of philosophical questions that I think are are really key to The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight Rises isn't necessarily concerned with those questions, but it is more about, you know, what we have seen the past two, two movies and how they have led to this moment where Bruce, Batman, is either going to bring hope, that hope to Gotham or he's going to die and maybe that hope is going to die as well. Uh, and so I think that's the the constant battle that's that's going on. I mean, I was just so interested by the fact that Batman is really not that huge of a part of this movie. Like the, there are long stretches of the movie where we are just with Bruce or where Bruce slash Batman is not even really involved in what is going on, right? We have a, a pretty significant chunk where he is down in the underground prison. Um, and yet this movie works so well, right? It's consistently engaging, I think, for all two hours and 40 minutes. 
I mean, I, I think there there probably are problems with the first half. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that we will talk about some of them, but I don't know. Upon this rewatch, I, I can't see much to complain about, although, of course, I do have some things to say about um, the role of Catwoman here, as perhaps you would expect, but uh, based on based on my discussion topics in the past few episodes. But yeah, I, I'm incredibly impressed with this movie. I think that the ending is amazing. Like I think that all of the almost all of the things that are great about The Dark Knight are also great about The Dark Knight Rises, and that this is a very different film. I think Christopher Nolan doesn't try to to match The Dark Knight. He doesn't try to make another Dark Knight, and, and like I wouldn't want to see The Dark Knight again, right? I, I want to see something different, but he makes something that is perhaps even on a greater scale than The Dark Knight, uh, and yet he pulls it off. I, I think this is an amazing movie. Yeah, it, it certainly is a greater scale than The Dark Knight. I think that over the course of the whole trilogy, you see this sort of increasing scale of Batman Begins. This like very fo- like, yes, there is some time spent with the League of Shadows and other places, but it's a very focused story about a very particular place within Gotham. And then I think Dark Knight is about Gotham as a whole. And then I think the scale you reach by the time you reach The Dark Knight Rises is, you know, a, 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 a multiple bigger than that as well. And I think that's, that's an interesting trajectory of the movie uh, in terms of the scale of the film, because one of the things that I think is really interesting about this film, and I think speaks to your point, Scott, is that it's like not like the dark Knight at all. I mean, aesthetically it maybe looks kind of similar. It's dark, it's gritty, etc. But the films, like I was thinking about, okay, what are the themes of this film? And then looking at my notes from like what the themes were from the dark Knight, And there's like no overlap whatsoever in the themes that he's talking about. And I think to make a movie like that and to integrate it into a larger story and feel cohesive with the full trilogy that you have, I think is an incredibly impressive feat. And it's probably, you know, it speaks to how hesitant I, you know, I was doing some background reading as I try to do before all these podcasts, but Chris Nolan didn't want to make this film. Like he didn't want to make this film and only agreed to it if he could crack the story to it. And he spent a lot of time with David S. Goyer and, and, and coming up with the story for the film. And then his, his brother ended up writing it along with him. And, you know, I think it took a while. And, and I think one of the things that they realized early on, and uh, even though you know, Heath Ledger being unfortunately having passed at this point, I think changed things around whether or not the Joker would be included. Heath Ledger wanted to do a, a sequel to this film, um, but, you know, had to come down pretty magnanimously that this wasn't going to be a film where you saw someone like the Joker, even though I'm sure Warner Brothers wanted to include uh, the, the Joker in the film just because of the iconic nature of it. Or actually, sorry, I read that that Warner Brothers really wanted him to do the Riddler because they thought that it would be a similar vibe to to the to the kind of chaotic, menacing, um, contemplative villain that kind of the Joker is. But Chris Nolan, again, to speak to like the contrast of this film and the previous one, you know, decided that okay, we we've had the whole take of all right, we have this really. Uh, conniving villain that's going to test Batman's, you know, mental acuity and his and his wit and his detective skills. We've had that here, and arguably we even had that in the first film with with Scarecrow, etc. But so what we need now is we need a, a villain that's going to test Batman's physical capabilities, and there's no better villain than that in probably the Batman universe than Bane, and especially the way they portray uh, Bane, Bane in this film is is particularly interesting and, and, and a lot better than the Bane we see in Batman and Robin, probably. But to go back to my, you know, my, uh, I guess, expectations for the film, uh, I, I shared your guys' hesitancy in some respects around what I thought of the film. And I'm kind of coming out with Scott here. This film is far better than I remembered it being. It's definitely the second best film 
and the trilogy for me now on, on, on this rewatch. I, I love all three, but I think this is this is a clear notch in between the ba- Batman Begins and, and the Dark Knight. I don't know if it's necessarily as good, um, and, but in some ways, I also think that it, it's hard to compare the two because you don't quite have the performance like a Heath Ledger, um, but you also just get a lot of new characters. I mean, you're talking here, Scott, like Batman and, and Bruce kind of, well, Batman being out of the picture for large parts, you get you spend a little bit more time with Bruce. He's not a new character, obviously, but Gary Oldman's out of the picture for a good chunk of it. You know, you don't have uh, Rachel anymore. You don't, I mean, obviously you don't have Harvey Dent. Um, you just have a bunch of these new characters. Like you have Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Jim Blake or um, John Blake. I can't remember his first name, Blake. And uh, you have Anne Hathaway's Selena Kyle. You have Marion Cotillard's, um, I don't even remember her fake Miranda name. Tate. Miranda, Miranda Tate. Tate. Yeah, Talia al Ghul. And then, of course, you have Tom Hardy as well. And I think it's so interesting to have a film that aesthetically looks really similar, but it's just like so fundamentally different, I feel like, than a lot of what's going on. And one of the things that I liked and appreciated this time, maybe, I don't even know if I'd ever really thought about this before, but like this film in a lot of ways is really saying like, you know what, this is the sequel to Batman Begins. Like really, this is this is the sequel to Batman Begins, not The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight is this different thing that obviously fits in the structure of the story that we're telling about Batman. But in terms of the themes we're exploring and the story of Bruce Wayne, that's when you're getting pulled back in to Batman Begins. And it's really satisfying in that way because as much as uh, The Dark Knight was enjoyable as a, as a departure from maybe the, the context of Batman Begins, obviously there's some through lines, certainly, but thematically it really feels like it's tying up the story of bruce wayne and i think that's what makes uh a lot of this so so compelling yeah and to i mean you're getting at something that i wanted to bring up which is that so much of this movie is about like transitions right like that it is gotham transitioning to something new it is bruce and gordon who are sort of the old guard of law enforcement and uh in you know in gotham sort of handing the cape, the mantle to someone else, right? We see, you know, the the reveal at the end of the movie that that John Blake is supposed to be Robin is not necessarily like, I don't think that that is supposed to be like, oh, here's a cliffhanger setting up a sequel. It is like, no, hey, Gotham is gonna be in good hands, right? Even if, if Batman and Gordon aren't around because you have this familiar name that we know, right? We know Robin as, you know, a, a force for good, like like Batman, is um and he's going to be here now he's going to he's going to be sort of the guardian of gotham you have like selena kyle taking the place of rachel sort of as um potential you know lover for for bruce and you know you have alfred who kind of abdicates from wayne manor throughout this movie there so so much of it is about transitioning which i think is what you want in that last movie in the in the series um and so I, i think that the fact that he pulls off all the transitions and that we are not sorry to see these characters go, right? We are we are happy with the places that they end up, uh, I think speaks to what Nolan does here. I, it is a sequel to Batman Begins. I think you could say that this is Batman Ends, right? Maybe. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thing that we might want to re- revisit at the end. I think, you know, maybe he it ends in some ways and and it begins again in other ways but i think that's all all to your point before we do talk about some of the characters and the plot details more specifically as usual i do want to talk about the technical aspects and one of the things here and i say that broadly so you know sound cinematography production design vfx there's a lot here obviously uh to to discuss but one of the things that i i think that 
I had forgotten is as iconic as the Dark Knight score is. I think uh, Hans Zimmer like maybe does just as good of a job here. And I thought it was kind of surprising that he didn't get another Oscar nomination for this score because, you know, he didn't I mean, get nominated for the Dark Knight either. But Oh, he didn't. Oh, no. Oh, I guess I was just thinking about Inception. So that's yeah. 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 Um, But yeah, I was a little surprised to not see him pick up an Oscar nomination here because as, as awesome as, you know, the dark Knight theme is, you know, the Batman theme is throughout the entire series. It's consistent. It's not necessarily new each time. I felt like this, this score here really taking those, those themes and those, you know, auditory threads from past movies and then applying this layer of just like Bane over all of it you know, the chanting, the Bane's theme, et cetera. I think that is some of the most, I, I I really do feel that that is some of the most iconic, you know, superhero sounds. And we talked about that, you know, two, two movies ago with, with the dark Knight about how iconic that was. And I think that I had just forgotten how, how good and how iconic this particular score was as well. And, and I can jump into some other technical aspect thoughts as well, but wanted to get your guys thoughts on, on the score on you know the general sound design, the cinematography, all all that all that jazz. I mean, obviously, he's relying on a lot of the same motifs as in The Dark Knight, um, which is is not a problem. That's what you want because that's what you're familiar with. And yeah, I think I feel the same way as I did about The Dark Knight score, which is that he knows when to to employ the music and when to you know strip it back. I think that you know the moments where he really leans in are you know the big moments in the movie right the when he is escaping from the prison and at the end and the first time bat when batman makes his return right on the highway or wherever it is that he yeah. you know pops up there in the midst of that chase you know that's another moment where he kind of leans into those you know familiar motifs that we know so yeah i don't i don't have a bad thing to say about zimmer's work throughout this trilogy i think it it is an integral part of making this trilogy what it is yeah, Scott Harvey, we're uh, we're in agreement on this movie score, um, in that yeah, I uh, you know big fan, and I, again, I think you know it. This movie, I don't want to say wouldn't be nearly as good, but it certainly would be very different. I feel like if anyone else was at the helm, um, and you know, I I love the way he you know he uh, use employs this the word, uh, you know, the score again like, at all the right moments. Um, again, just you know to speak to another like side of the technical aspect of the movie, the. Uh, the scene in the football stadium, you know, uh, when Heinz Ward is returning to kickoff, you know, just the, the way that looks. Like I remember the first time I saw that, I, I think it was in a trailer for the movie. And I was just like, oh my God. And then, you know, to this day, like, you know, when, when that happens, like, you know, there's the, there's the national anthem and, you know, I just feel that sense of like impending doom. Uh, he has a good voice. Yeah. You know, and then, yeah. It's the, it's the percussion is what it is. It's that, that like low rumble of like here's something something's about to go down yeah and it was uh yeah super well done like again the, the movie just you know gives me chills all over the uh all over the movie yeah no the the sound you know the score the sound however you want to describe it because i think also a big part is the the chanting right which you, you get a lot of in the pit i mean that's that's where it's employed the most but i think you also hear threads of that in the other parts of of the film as well and the fact that you know Hans Zimmer essentially just sends out a call for you know anyone who wants to send their voice in chanting this like two word Uzbekistani phrase or whatever it is uh, that that says rise and he he clips all those together he merges like like literally a hundred thousand different recordings of this thing together into one and, and and that's like the sound motif for you know that part of of the score I just think it's like 
I mean, it's really cool, right? I don't know. I, I can't think of another. I'm sure it's it happened. Something like that has happened before, but um, that, that you know, crowdsourcing parts of your you know chanting rather than getting I don't know like a bunch of people to record like different uh, different versions of themselves singing that and merging that together. You know, I, I think that's a really cool thing. And uh, yeah, Hans Zimmer is you know doing doing his best work here uh, without James Newton Howard this time, but um, yeah, just overall, just really incredible stuff. And then the cinematography from, I think this is, is this his last collaboration with Wally Pfister? I think it is. Um, Possibly. Yeah, because I think Wally Pfister decided to go make terrible movies or something after this. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> um, was it Transcendence? I can't remember. The uh-huh. yeah, that one film. of the worst movies I've ever seen, honestly. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, anyway, he has one more, one more moment in the light here with Chris Nolan. And, and I think the cinematography is, is good. Uh, here as well and you know vfx sort of speak for themselves as you see sort of a you know dilapidated new york city uh but also like new jersey Uh, they do a lot of different cities here that they shoot with obviously the football field is in pittsburgh um but yeah i think overall the cinematography is good the production design is good the vfx are good the costumes i think really good as usual i think that you know yeah obviously joker is a pretty high bar to to live up to from the last uh, from the Dark Knight, but I think what they do with Bane is again completely different, but completely works. And a lot of a lot of what you get there, and then and obviously uh, Catwoman as well as another is a new a new costume to employ in there. I think it's all just really interestingly done, and I think really speaks to uh, what what they're trying to capture with the performances and with these characters overall as well. So again, technical aspects from a Nolan film, you it, it's sort of expected at this point, right? Like o- Oscar worthy production elements are are almost a must all right guys changing up a little bit here i want to do the action set pieces first i think this is like the most action heavy nolan film maybe i mean like i think you could argue that maybe inception is up there as well but uh this film has a lot of action in it and i sent you guys like a list of different set pieces uh kind of tried to list them all out for us to discuss but kind of want to go around the horn here and pick one that stands out i mean you can give your general thoughts about the overall action in this film first, but then we can break down, we can each break down a scene maybe that we enjoyed the most. Jay, we'll start with you first. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, on like a wide scale, uh, this movie to me in terms of the action, I I mean, it it does well. Um, You know, I, I swear every time I see this movie, I, this movie, I'm so sorry for calling this out. Like, I feel so stupid saying this, but like, I feel like every time I see this movie, I find one more instance of a henchman falling down without actually being hit. Um, which w- once you see it, I feel like you can't unsee, but that's so microscopic on like the scale of everything else, which I, again, like I, I really enjoy. So now I'm going to talk about, <laughs> I'm going to shift positive here and I'll focus on the pit and the pit where if you, if you don't like the pit, simply you're not going to like this movie, I feel like. And there's, you, you can come at it with this sense of, you know, like, Oh, like how can, you know, a child like make a jump that like grown men can't like it's a physical feat and blah, blah, blah. But like maybe it shouldn't work, but it really does for me. You know, I really buy into it. Bruce is lying there like having uh, failed the climb twice, you know, and he's asking the guy, you know, like, why can't I? Or he didn't necessarily I was saying, you know, you can't do this because you're not afraid. Right. And from from that moment, like, you know, I, I can feel like, you know, like every time I see this, like my spine starts to crawl, um, you know, right up to the moment where he takes the climb. And, you know, every time I see that scene, like I will be, you know, the what 16 year old boy in the theater um, seeing the back the first time as he, you know, gets to the top at the jump. And I, you know, like again, ear to ear grins, you know, it, uh, it, 
every time, no matter how cheesy or like impractical the whole notion of being able to make jump is, uh, it, it just works. And again, the chanting, you know, uh, as you mentioned, Scott, you know, really adds to it, especially here, um, both like in the early climbs and then especially at the end, you know, uh, when the, the, even the pit doctor is, you know, chiming in from his cell, um, and, you know, they're all yelling for him. Like, again, it, it just builds up so well. Um, and to me, even though, you know, it's not terribly, like, action-heavy in terms of, you know, like, guns, violence, fighting, whatever, like, you know, it, it is the moment that stands out to me just because of, you know, that moment when he gets to the very top, everything is at a peak, and then the bats come out and he makes the lead freedom. Yeah, I mean, the score there, you're talking about it, the score there is is particularly well used. And one of my favorite you know cinematography shots in the film is when the camera rises up with with bruce out of the pit and you see sort of you know the city that's nearby and it's so weird to just think about there's just multi, like this massive city near and <laughs> right next door to, to this underground prison it's kind of it's kind of funny but it's it's a yeah it's an absolutely great scene scott any thoughts on on that scene and that you want to comment on and, and then you know your overall thoughts and your the scene you want to talk about yeah i mean i think that's the natural pick for like the the action standout right it is uh, an epic scene and it is one of those you know scenes that gives you chills for sure and um the i i will say that it doesn't seem weird to y'all that he does not get a running start when he makes the jump and that he just basically like dead jumps from where he is like at the edge of the you know the platform to the next one like it seems to me like if you got a running start obviously that would give you more momentum going forward but no he just like stands there and then just like uses all of his strength and somehow makes it which see this is exactly what i'm talking about like i feel like i mean i i know you're not coming down on it like super yeah. hard but you really do have to turn your brain off because even when you see the the past attempts of like the other people they show in the flashbacks or the one guy in the pit who tried to do it, it while looks Bruce much was further there. yeah well, it looks further, and their jumps are just like like they're not extending their arms all the yeah. way. Out. Like you have to just you have you have to forget Four about form. it for a half a second. And look, these I'm aren't good. these aren't Olympic jumpers, guys. Everyone needs to calm down. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I do I do like right that 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 the way that he gets out of the the pit right it is the explanation that Jay talked about that you have to like you know you have to be afraid, be afraid. of death so yeah. that you you know will do you, you will be very careful and you'll do whatever it takes to i mean it makes me think about alex honnold right scott of maybe yeah. that's why he's so good at what he does right of of being able to free solo climb all of this stuff because it is that i mean of course he's he's Dude, not that guy really is not afraid at all the guy, yeah, the guy I mean, has that, no emotion whatsoever. But, but it it does make you you think about that still even even though like his brain or whatever is programmed differently as they talk about in that movie but um that yeah hey maybe the fact that if i take this next step and it's a wrong step and i'm then i'm gonna die maybe that is um what motivates you to like be very careful and to make sure that you don't mess it up or whatever this time like i like that as being the explanation of how he gets out and yeah i mean it's it's a perfect full circle moment right it's, it's what you want from the last movie in a trilogy or in a series is like to come full circle and you know batman begins right towards the beginning of the film we have bruce trapped at the bottom of the well with all the bats circling above him and you know he he escapes that day and and you know he has to do it again right one last time so that he can help Gotham and save Gotham one last time. Uh, and I think that's just a beautiful duality that, that Nolan uh, has there. And as far as the scene I would look at, I mean, the fight 
fights with Bain, I think, are really good for the reasons you mentioned, Scott, of uh, the fact that they are so physical, right? This is um, something that, you, you know, you don't necessarily get with Joker, right? Because he's not a physically intimidating villain. The, the reason he's such a good villain is because of how he can get under Batman's skin and um, mess with Batman's moral code. Yeah. Um, but Bat but Bane is, is a very physical villain. And you, you throw that on top of the fact that Bruce is obviously he's eight years older. He's kind of at the end of his rope here in terms of physically being able to do this Batman thing, maybe for for that much longer. And so it just makes every single punch and blow that Bane throws at him feel like, is this going to be the one that finally breaks him? Right. Is this going to be the one that, uh, you know, that that finally physically, you know, destroys him to where he can no longer go on? Um, and so that, I think, is an added element of tension to to watching these scenes and just, you know, wondering how is, you know, this aging Batman, how is he going to be able to overcome, you know, the the raw strength of Bane? Um, and obviously it takes some help in the end from from Selena. But um, I think that uh, I, I think those fight scenes are really interesting and a great compliment to. Uh, you know, again, what we get in the Dark Knight with it not being as physical, perhaps. And I just think in general, this movie probably has the best action of the three. Yeah. Yeah, I I do love the moment where Selena comes in and just shoots, <laughs> shoots Bane. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not as into you as your no guns. For I, don't have the, I don't have the same philosophy on guns or whatever <laughs> as you do. Yeah, yeah no, it's uh, that's a that's a really great moment. And yeah, I think that it's it speaks volumes that, you know, the action scene that you're talking about here is, you know, sort of the what you would call a more stereotypical like finale of a superhero film where you just got two guys who are just trying to beat the crap out of each other, but it doesn't feel like that. Right. Like, cause, because you know, everything else that's happened in the films, these like fight scenes don't just feel like brutal punch them until they die. Kind of scenes that you get in every other superhero movie that Scott, you've complained about in other superhero movies, right. About how, you know, a lot of them come down to just who can punch the hardest or who can not, you know, who can punch the other person as many, you know, more times basically. And in the fact that, you know, you're drawing attention to these moments where it is two very physical, you know, punch battles, essentially, I think is, it really speaks volume to what the movie is able to do with those, what otherwise might be very stereotypical scenes for a, like a hero versus a villain fighting each other. And, and I agree. I think bottom line is, is I agree. And, and I love the first fight scene in particular with, the fact that they, they cut away and show you all like all the people in this sort of like arena like area watching and how just like uninterested these people are or like or like un, I guess maybe unworried these people are there's like this lack of concern around you know for Bane basically because he's just like he's going to kill Batman basically if he wants to and I think it adds to sort of the dread and then watching Selena also watch the scene I think is really powerful and uh, a little bit disturbing in, in a way that I don't think you really get in any other Batman movies because you're like, look, I know it's a it's you know it's a superhero film. Like he's probably not going to die right here, but man, he's getting just the absolute crap beat out of him. And literally at the end, with you know breaking his back uh, over his knee is a pretty brutal thing. Uh, I think I think to watch happen. And so I think it, it really does speak volumes. Jay, any thoughts on on these two scenes here before I give my scene that I want to talk about? Um, yeah, I mean to speak to the the arena fight scene, you know that uh, uh, again like. Tom Hardy is Bane. We'll talk about this more in depth. Works for me like ninety-five percent of the time, and this is you know definitely one of the higher moments for me because as you know, Bruce is like throwing all these punches at him again. You know, it's not just the people in in the again in the arena, quote unquote, that aren't worried, right? Like he's you know repeatedly getting punched in the face, and you know you you get nothing out of him until he finally decides to like fight back, and then you know he starts talking about 
you know, theatricality and deception, you know, agents for the uninitiated, but like we are initiated, you know, and he, you know, he, he, you know, continually gives you the sense that he's in complete control. And then that whole speech about, you know, you think darkness is your ally. Like I was, you know, born in it, molded by it, you know, all the way up to the very end again. You, you know, adopted where... it. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that, all the way. Go ahead. I was gonna say, and that's why the last fight, right? That's what has to be in the daylight. I think that's, that's one thing that's really key. And, you know, we don't have that many daylight action scenes in the other movies because Batman, you know, is he's the night warrior or whatever, but you know, as Bane makes clear, he was born in the shadows. And so to beat him, you got to take him out of the shadows. So that's why I think that the, the daylight, works at the end even though i do see a lot of people saying well you know it 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 messes with the mythology of batman being you know the the warrior of the night or whatever like i totally understand why they did it yeah and i think the whole i i mean yeah i think i think the whole first fight scene is riddled with with very quotable bane moments i think that the darkness one is one of them they're like i i was curious whether your body or your spirit would break first is is another one uh, and just overall yeah they're, they're great scenes and i think for me the last one that i'd like to talk about here and i think kind of like scott here i kind of fuse these two scenes together because i think they're back to back but that is the stock exchange and then we get this we get this scene with selena and batman on the roof of is it Daggett's house or whatever? I don't even know. I didn't even, I've forgotten Ben Mendelsohn was even in this film. Um, but yeah, where you see the bat, the bat, the batter, the bat copter, the bat plane, whatever you want to call it. I think that they just call it the bat in the film. I think, yeah, but I, I, the stock exchange scene is like kind of like the interesting set piece to me. Like the pit is, is definitely, I think I would agree with you guys that it's probably the highlight in terms of set pieces. But I think the stock exchange is the most interestingly designed one where you have this sort of heist like scene in the film where they break in and Glenn Powell, you think he's going to get shot here in the opening scene is what a random can. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> you know? I, I had no idea that he was in this. Well, yeah, I mean, this is before he did anything yeah, well, relevant yeah. whatsoever, but I was like, Whoa, Glenn Powell, what are you doing here? Um, and yeah, there's this really cool scene where you have them break, break into the Gotham stock exchange and do what they're doing here. And then you have this motorbike scene and that's where you're, Scott, one of the things you referenced earlier with like the musical motifs, you get the return of Batman and the police giving chase to Batman instead of, for some reason, the people who just robbed the stock exchange. I just find that's so interesting and so funny, but I think this is like one of those, this is like the interestingly designed set piece for the film. If you, if you think about, you know, a more traditional set piece, like the fight scenes or sort of the climactic set piece like the pit, right? Where you're overcoming this like really obvious obstacle that, that's happening here. So I think this is the one that I wanted to talk about and think that again, it's interestingly designed and, and well done. And I and I I mean we'll we'll talk more about Christian Vale and Hathaway's chemistry, but I I love a lot of the scenes with the two of them uh, in the same place and together because I think that they have really great chemistry, like way better than than Christian Bale ever had with Maggie Gyllenhaal or uh, Katie Holmes, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, I think it's it, a fantastic sort of duo of scenes. And I really like the backhopter. I mean, you, you guys have been more lukewarm, I think, about some of the, the you know, whether the whether it's the the tumbler or the bat that, you know, the bike. I forget what they actually call that. Um, but the, the bat cycle, I think that's what it's called. The bat and pod. The bat pod. Yeah, that, that is what it's called. Yeah. Uh, but I'd be curious to see what you guys thought of these two scenes. But now, and also like the bat copter, which just has its rotary blades underneath the the vehicle which is different. I, all, I, all I really have to contribute is that I, I do love the line, right? Of This isn't a car or whatever, as they like, oh, yeah. as they fly away. Um, I thought that that was great. But 
yeah, I, I don't, again, this, this is not really my area of expertise, but I mean, I do, like I said, I think this movie has the best action. So I agree with you that, that those scenes are great. And I do have other thoughts about uh, Bruce and Catwoman that I will uh, yeah. mention later. Yeah. Between, you know, this isn't a car and, you know, when uh, before, you know, the big, uh, the bat reveal, you know, when, uh, Mm-hmm. fully comes out you know like a rat in a trap gentlemen and then the other cop goes i think you might have the wrong animal there sir um yeah you know is this movie funny <laughs> like you know they um it's funnier uh, than again, joker yeah i'll agree with that um yeah I, I mean you know again you know good good pieces uh i'm fine with the bat or the bat copter whatever you want to call it again like i i wasn't i don't think i've ever really been too high on you know any of the, the bat transportation pieces um but you know, it, I mean, whatever. It, it, it's better than the Robert Pattinson Batman or Batmobile. I'll tell you that. Um, that you saw, saw that a still of that. Calm down. Even so, um, yeah, no, the the, the bat is cool. Um, it, 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 I think it works again. You know, for what we were expecting, and again, you know, in I guess following, and you know, you went from the Batmobile to the Batpod, like you needed a yeah. way to just, I guess, like elevate a little bit, right? And I mean, no pun intended, like it elevates. You know, <laughs> Scott, any other thoughts there? You look like you're about to say something. On the topic of uh, of whether the movie is funny, I do just want to say that there is one Morgan Freeman moment that I love towards the end when, like, the <laughs> reactor oh, the has been... A- well, yeah, when uh, when Talia, like, activates the thing or whatever after she's been been killed. I don't know the correct terminology or anything for it, but... Floods um, the chamber or whatever, yeah. Yeah, they, they realize that it's going to go off. And it's like, you know, this huge, dark, like, intense, climactic action moments or whatever. And then we cut to Morgan Freeman, and they're, like, realizing what happened. And he's like, oh, no, or something like that. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what he says. Oh, but dear. It's a little, oh, dear, yeah. And I was like, thank you for bringing some levity to this situation. <laughs> Yeah, there's a couple of good good jokes in 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 the film, but you know Nolan not not known for his comedy, so it's not surprising. There's only <laughs> only a few. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll switch gears. Talk about the characters. I think we'll start with talking about kind of the uh, what I view as sort of the three main characters of the film, and then we'll leave some time to talk about the supporting roles. But no better place to start with the person uh, who really is the the titular role in all three films, right? Batman, Bruce Wayne, Christian Bale. Do you view this as sort of more of the same? from him carrying through from the Batman begins in the dark Knight, or is this performance bringing something different to the table, whether or not it's better or worse than other films, maybe I'm less concerned with, but just this idea of, is it more of the same or is there something new and additional added on to the performance here in the dark Knight rises from him? Just, just to hammer this point home one more time, Christian Bale, best Batman. I just, I needed to say that one more time. Um, so that if I'm ever Guy's got great hair, yeah, so that, you know, when I listen to this down the road, uh, and if, you know, something is making me change my mind, I, I think twice before agreeing to that. The thing that, you know, works, I guess, differently uh, for me, and I'm curious to see if you guys agree, right, is like the the pain, I guess, behind Bruce Wayne, you know, coming into this movie and like throughout uh, at least the first half of the movie and, you know, I guess maybe to when he exits the pit, is just something that I feel like isn't really explored that much uh, when you think of, or even thought of that much when you think about Batman. I know a lot of people, at least that you know I've spoken to uh, directly about this movie, have problems with it because it opens with Batman having like quit in a way, right? Like, I mean, and you can argue, you know, whether or not that's a legitimate claim, but you know, the the whole like Batman never quits is something that I think a lot of people, including myself, like generally like cling to. But I think that, you know, this is the one instance of 
uh, again, quitting is a is a bit reductionist, but you know, I guess though this is an instance of Bruce, you know, very much. He's still doing what needs to be done. That's what I was gonna say. He he does the best for Gotham, which I think is his goal all along. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so again, you'll have to listen to you know me saying Batman never quits, and I mean again, you know, we we don't need to necessarily dive into that too much, but. But the bottom line is I feel like in every like comic book I've ever read, like Batman always finds a way to come back. He like wills himself back. And in this case, you know, he didn't. And that's something that, you know, was maybe hard to like wrap my head around in the beginning. But again, like Bale, you know, the, the, the first movie is very much about like fear. And the second one is very much about like chaos. Right. Which are two things that I think are like very common to find Batman kind of dealing with. And, you know, in this movie, it feels like it's just more about pain and, I, I think Christian Bale does a phenomenal job with that. Again, like giving me, you know, something that I haven't, I don't really think about, you know, Batman kind of dealing with, you know, he's very much just like the, I was a rock. Like he always finds a way, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to answer your question, Scott, like, I think it is kind of more of the same to some extent. Like, I don't know that Bale is really being asked to do anything particularly new here that he hasn't done in the previous films or find any new levels or anything. But I don't think that that's a problem, right? Like, I think that, you know, I agree. He's, he's definitely the best Batman. His performance has is excellent and is consistently excellent across all three films. Um, and, and I think that the, you know, the story of the movie doesn't necessarily call for him to do that much new, except, you know, keep, keep up that internal struggle of um, number one, like, what does it mean to be Batman? What does it mean to be a hero? What what like what do those terms symbolize? And number two, like his his struggle, like can I have what I want for myself, but also what I want for Gotham at the same time? Like are those two things mutually exclusive? And if so, which one am I going to prioritize? Um, and I think that um, you know he he does a, he does a great job whether he is Bruce or Batman with whether he is wearing a mask or not of um, you know, portraying what is going on uh, in, inside as well as outside. And uh, yeah, I, I don't have much bad to say about his performance in any of the movies. Yeah, for me, I, I think it's a little bit of both for me. Like, I think a lot of it is the same. A lot of it has to be the same, right? Like a lot of it, like he still is, I mean, he still is Bruce Wayne. You still have to see the, the through lines through these films. He still is Batman. You have to see the through lines through these films. But one of the things that, and I think this is like, again, this may speak more to the script more than anything, but uh, it feels like a natural evolution, Jay. And, and I take your point about pain a lot. I think it's a really good one about, you know, this is idea that like eight years have passed and it feels like in a lot of ways that Bruce Wayne, Batman, whatever, like is stuck there. And this is to Scott's point as well. Like what feels like a lot of more of the same is that like, even though eight years of time have gone by, Bruce Wayne is still living eight years ago. Like he thinks he can be the same Batman. He was eight years ago. He's living with the regret and you know the things that happened from the dark night like he's living with that like he's he still is missing rachel whatever right like he hasn't moved on past those points but one of the one of the parts that i think that shows that evolution there is that yes he's still living back in that time but there's a sense of despair and lack of hope that is just not there i think in in the other films from him i mean he overcomes that over the course of like that kind of is his arc over the course of the film but I think that from the start, it's just like, you know, I I don't really want to do that, like want to be doing this. I'm only doing this because I have to. And there was parts of that in, in the other films, like he was doing it because he needed to, because Gotham needed him to. But now it just feels like all of the soul that's in him being Batman, not the performance, but him being Batman, is kind of just gone, like it's empty almost. And I think that's what 
Alfred is talking about when he had, you know, you have this big, you know, climactic scene between the two of them in the mansion when Alfred is like, I can't watch you do this. You're going to die. I'm, I'm not afraid that you can't win. I'm afraid that you don't want to things like that, which I think it, it really strikes at the core of what the performance is from, from Bale in this movie and what he has to overcome. And so as much as I think you see the through line of who Bruce Wayne is and who Batman is in this film as played by Christian Bale, I think there's, there is a new, you know, an additional layer of nuance that's added on that he has to, to, that has to be layered in in order for you to understand the place where Bruce Wayne is at the beginning of this film uh, as sort of a continuation of where he was at the, at the end of the dark Knight. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. And he's great. He is the, he is the best Batman. Jay, uh, remind me that if I ever think that this isn't the best Batman, just to, just tell me. We will hold each other accountable. Yeah. Ben Affleck's still a good Batman. I still stand by that, but uh, oh, me Christian, too. Christian me too. Bale. Oh yeah. And I'm not saying anyone is, I'm just saying Christian Bale though. It's another level. Anyway, moving on from from that, and I'm sure we'll pick back up with with Christian Bale as, as we go through because he has you know interactions with all the other characters uh, in this film. But the first one that I want to talk to here the, of the second of the other two major characters is Selena Kyle, played by Anne Hathaway. Guys, I will say that I don't actually know how vocal I've been about this on the podcast, but I'm really not that big of a fan of Anne Hathaway. She's like I don't know, like the equivalent of like Matt Damon for actresses for me, of someone who's like pretty pretty well regarded, pretty famous, but I'm just like not that hot on as as an actress and i don't know like maybe this is the exception like i think she's a really good Catwoman. maybe it's because there's like comparison points where you know the other cat cat that we've had whether it's uh halle berry in the standalone movie or i forget it's not alicia michelle Silver. pfeiffer michelle pfeiffer not alicia silverstone she plays uh batgirl um but yeah uh, uh michelle pfeiffer i think like like I don't have the same maybe regard and and that some other people do for Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, but I think Selena Kyle uh, or Anne Hathaway's Selena Kyle is probably the best Catwoman for me, guys. But I want to get your thoughts. What did you think of this character overall, and also Anne Hathaway's performance as her? And I am gonna. There is another spot later on, Scott, for the actual relationship between her and Bruce. So we will we will circle back around to that if you want to save it still. Um. Yeah. Well, I, I think I should probably just air everything now. But go for um, it. What I will say is, I do think that this is one of the better female characters in a Nolan movie. Like, I I, I do think that that is the case. Yeah. Um, however, I think that is primarily the case because of Anne Hathaway, because I think she is fantastic as Catwoman yeah. and exactly um, what I what I want from Catwoman. And like, I, I don't have the same feelings about her as, as you do, Scott. But I, I mean, like at the time, I don't know what my, my thoughts were. Um, about this is this is right before this is even before Les Mis because Les Mis comes out I think a few months after this film and she hadn't really done that many big things if this were to come out today and she was to be cast as Catwoman I think my reaction would have been like really like Anne Hathaway like I don't know about this but she she silences all all doubts I think that her performance is exactly what you want from from Catwoman um like that that blend of like mysterious and sexy and like she's got it all but I I think I still think that the like relationship in this character itself um, leaves much to be desired. Um, and, and I think talking about maybe I'm a little, with Bruce, you're talking about specifically yeah, about yeah. Bruce. Okay. Maybe I'm a little bit spoiled because I'm playing the Batman telltale series and like the, the, the Bruce and Selena, like the Batman Catwoman relationship is really, really well done in those games. Like it's one of the best parts of the story, but, and I think like they, they have their, their, their heads in the right place. Right. I think that, the depiction of like 
Bruce being like, no, I think you are more than a thief. Like that is, that is how I feel about you. And, and Selena being like, I am your ticket out of this, right? Let's, let's go away together. I'm a second chance for you, whatever. Like that is how the relationship should be. Absolutely. They just don't do enough to make me believe it. Right. Um, and so even though I love individual moments and especially, I mean, I love the ending, um, uh, the, the way, the place these two characters end up, I just don't think that there's enough I, because there's, it's, you know, it's a two hour, 40 minute movie. He has to do so much. And I don't think that there's enough time spent on this character and establishing why she feels this way about Bruce slash Batman. Like the kiss for me at the end just felt so eye rolly. I, I, I don't know. It, I, it just, I knew that that's where it was headed, but it just like, yeah. I feel like it does come out of left field. So I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about this overall. Again, like I said, I think Anna Hathaway is fantastic. I think the potential was there. And if there's one character in this movie who I'm like, I would want to see another movie about this character. It's, it's this character. It's Catwoman. Um, but I, I still think Nolan is falling into his old traps of, I don't really know what to do with female characters that much, except to make them fall in love with my male heroes. <laughs> Just wait until Elizabeth Debicki falls in love with Robert Pattinson. Just wait. Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> uh, no. I, so I think that's an interesting point. I agree. And I would. I want to ask you this question. Is that if the kiss just goes away, do you have any problem with like that whole with like the way, like the point where they end? Right. I, I, I understand that there's still the issue of like there's not enough development there. But like is a lot of like the negative feeling coming from the fact that the kiss just feels really weird in that moment? Because it, it definitely does. It, it does well there's that but then it's also the fact that like he is he does have a relationship with miranda tate also in the movie right like she's using <laughs> well him that blew for, up didn't it <laughs> yeah well she's using him for for other reasons but like presumably he has actual feelings for her so for him to go from like the one like one of the two female characters in the movie to the other female character in the movie of like okay yeah maybe i actually like have over the span of now. like three months though right like there's a lot yeah, of time to pass yeah but still we don't see like that that many interactions between them like i guess she does eventually figure out that bruce is batman right but like she doesn't know in, in the, the in the right? arena scene in the arena scene she finds out okay because yeah, yeah. Bane um, says we don't have to be yeah. we don't have to pretend here or whatever he says but i mean yeah but, but still that's like an hour in so like you know we don't have her like I, I don't know. I don't know how to say what, what I'm trying to say, but like yeah. she doesn't understand that they're the same person. And I think that's one of the main reasons that she does like have feelings for him in the end is because of she understands the two sides of, of this guy because she 100%. is in a similar place. But that doesn't happen until an hour in, like I said. So I, I don't know. It's just yeah. there's it, it is one of the underdeveloped parts of the movie. And honestly, it's the main thing that keeps me from giving that will keep me from giving this a 10 out of 10 when we give our scores. Honestly. Brutal. That's brutal because I because I, I agree with you that this is like one of the better roles. And I, I think one of the important things to talk about, like the going back to Bruce a little bit before I talk about Catwoman is the like, I think the reason why the, it still works for me and like the, the whole thing makes sense is that I think two two reasons. First, to your point here, there is this moment of discovery when she has betrayed Batman and given him to Bane when she realizes that this person that she kind of rolls her eyes at and has a little bit of disdain for, i.e. Bruce Wayne is also this person who's using his billions of dollars and, and trying to take care of people. Like that is a quality that she sees and, and values in herself. And that's a quality that she now values in Bruce Wayne and, and, you know, slash Batman here. And I think that 
that's where I understand sort of the relationship development. I think she feels bad for like a lot of the things that she's done. And, and she does feel this sense of like, all right, I, I'm maybe doing bad things, but she's an anti-hero. She's doing them for the right reasons. Like she wants to, you know, she only steals from the rich, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, you know, she does end up coming back and, and helping them. And I think it's a little bit contrived and, and it does lack a little bit of development, but I understand it from her perspective. And I think I also understand it from Bruce's perspective as well. And I, and I take your point here around, he does seem to jump around, you know, from, Miranda Tate to Selena Kyle, or you know, over the course of a, a very few scenes, if you just think about the number of scenes happening here in the film. But I think, kind of to the whole point of what Bruce is doing here is like Bruce is looking for an excuse, right, to leave Gotham to you know to have something to live for that's not you know the salvation of Gotham or the preservation of Gotham. And I think that that makes him someone who probably is is a little bit more fickle in those things. Like he, if he finds a thing that's, that gives him a reason to live that, you know, basically can replace Rachel in his, in his heart, right. Then he'll go after that. And I, I think that's a little, and I, I do still think that it's a little bit rushed, but I think that the actual plotting of, you know, these two characters and, and their relationship together, I think it works in the overall scheme of things, even though it is again, definitely rushed and could use maybe a little bit more, more development there. Going back to Anne Hathaway here, and Jay, we will jump to you here in a second. But like going back to Anne Hathaway, I think, like guys, phenomenal Catwoman. I think she's like really great. Like maybe the best performance of the film. I don't even. I have to think a little bit more about that. But like she's absolutely great. I think she makes certainly makes the most and elevates everything that she's given to do in the film. And I I think that you you talk about physicality in a lot of different ways between like Bruce and um, you know Batman and and Bane. I think that she brings a different kind of of physicality that comes with the Catwoman role. And I really appreciated that variety added into what is otherwise still a very physical film, but in a more like brutal way. She's, uh, you know, she's more of that kind of burglar, very flexible, like almost gymnastic style, you know, combat and, and physicality that I think adds a lot of variety to it. And I really appreciated that about character. Jay, do you want to throw your thoughts in here to this debate of what makes sense for this Catwoman role, the relationship with Bruce, and then also your thoughts on Anne Hathaway's performance? Sure. I mean, I, I think uh, we're all in agreement, right? That, you know, her, her performance is Catwoman. Great. Um, you know, uh, Scott Harvey, you're definitely a little bit spoiled if you're playing the Telltale games right now, um, because that's the, that's certainly the dynamic between the two uh, Batman and Catwoman that, you know, that we deserve uh, on the big screen. Um, but, you know, and, and again, so much of that goes to, and like uh, so much of that goes to Anne Hathaway, right? Like, you know, she, again, she, you know, I don't want to rehash everything you've said, but she really does bring, you know, the flair, the, you know, the noir, the sexy vibe, like all of it, you know, like she, she plays the character like perfectly in my mind. Yeah. And, you know, the way I imagine those, again, just to use the, the, the telltale example again, the way I imagine those playing out is like on the big screen is very similar to how, you know, she, uh, you know, walks, talks, you know, interacts with Batman. It, it, it's all there. I actually read something not that long ago that apparently when Anne Hathaway auditioned for this movie, she thought she was reading for Harley Quinn. Um, and I would love to see that audition tape, right? Like to see how she played this. Um, I could before... also see her playing Poison Ivy. That's the, maybe this is a, speaks to Anne Hathaway. Like I think that that I could also see her playing Poison Ivy too, which is yeah. No, she 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 makes a a great Gotham villain. Um, yeah, I, I would love to see that audition tape. But you know, very glad that Nolan or whoever was in the room with her, you know, stopped her and was like, you know, you're reading for Catwoman, right? And then, uh, you know, I ended up. Uh, Ended with her, of course, you know, getting the role and knocking it out of the park. I'm just imagine her, imagining her reading all of Catwoman's lines and like the really like big Brooklyn Harley accent right? or whatever that Harley Quinn always has. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Suicide Squad. 
but with Anne Hathaway. <laughs> Yikes. No, Margot, Margot is great. Any other thoughts, Jay, on, on Catwoman-related things? I mean, yeah, I'll also agree, you know, that they maybe do, you know, under underdevelop uh, her relationship with Bruce, right? Like, we really just don't get that much of it. And, you know, there's already so much going on um, in the movie. Like, you know, I'll, I'll cut them a little slack uh, in not showing us too much on that front. The kiss at the end is super forced. Uh, and honestly, I, th- I think, you know, to answer the question you asked Scott Harvey, uh, if you remove that, I-, I think I feel actually like quite a bit better about their whole dynamic. Like, you know, it, it can very much end with them just, you know, in the cafe uh, at the end, you know, with the implication that, you know, this is going somewhere. We really, I don't think we need to see that kiss. You don't need to see Anne Hathaway shove her tongue down Christian Bale's throat. Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. All right. Well, segueing on from that, because there is probably no good segue from that to the next thing is uh, Tom Hardy's Bane, guys. Uh, we've talked already about the kind of the comparison between, you know, this villain being the follow up to a villain like, you know, the Joker and, and specifically Heath Ledger's Joker, who, again, this chaotic, very contemplative sort of uh, mentally taxing villain to a physically taxing villain. And, you know, we can continue to hear talk about Bane as a character if we want. Uh, but would love to hear what you guys think about Tom Hardy's performance and, you know, what is otherwise probably like, un- like if no one told you this was Tom Hardy, except for the one shot you get in the pit of his actual face, like, could you really even tell that it's Tom Hardy? Probably not. Uh, what did you, Scott, we'll start with you first. What did you think of, of Tom Hardy's uh, performance as sort of, I don't know, is this a prequel to Mad Max Fury Road? I don't even know. Uh, fantastic. Uh, he, he really is. I mean, like he ha- he has an un- unenviable task of yeah. following from one of the greatest villain performances of all time. And so he just does something completely different, right? Which is what you have to do. I think he doesn't try to do another Heath Ledger. And I mean, we've talked about the physicality. One thing that I like is the, the fact that like, as, as you mentioned, you can't really see his face. You can't see his mouth moving when he say, says the line. So I think there's a really eerie quality to like when you hear Bane speaking, but you like don't see his lips moving or anything. It's like he could be anywhere, right? Like he's he's like it's he has like a threatening presence because like his his words feel like they could be coming from all over the place. So I think that's a really cool effect. Um, but I just like this character in general, and I think he's really interesting and he's not just like a dumb jock, right? He is, um, which I think is to talk to you about the telltale game. He, Bane is, is, is portrayed a little bit of a, as a dumb jock in the, well, in that's the every game. other portrayal of Bane. I mean, yeah, right. Right. Bane, right. Um, Robin, I think that yeah. is a traditional, but I like like, Bane is like basically like a corrupt politician in a way in this movie. Like he is making all of these promises, right. About what he is going to do for the people of Gotham. Like he is, you know, he's attacking the businessmen. He is putting them on trial for their crimes against the regular citizens of Gotham. He is, you know, letting people out of the prisons. He is doing like some like progressive things that on their face, it's kind of like, well, these don't honestly sound so bad. But the problem is he is using number one, he's like using terroristic means to achieve his goals. And number two, he doesn't actually really care about any of these things. It seems like in the end, what he really wants is to get all these people on his side and then to destroy them. Right. Which I think is like uh, talking about the corrupt politician analogy. I think we have seen many, many times where a a politician will, will make a lot of promises, say, say a lot of things, maybe even take some preliminary steps towards doing things that we think are going to be really good and that are going to, bring progress um 
but they're really just a tool to to win support, right? To get themselves in a position of power so that then they can kind of do whatever they want. Uh, and so I kind of like the that portrayal of Bane. And uh, Scott, you were mentioning how Christopher Nolan thinks that none of the movies are political. Yeah, I don't see how you can really say that about this movie where you, I mean, again, look at, look at the things he is attacking. He is attacking uh, the stock market. He is attacking businessmen. He is attacking professional sports, right? He, he goes after the football stadium. He is attacking these really like capitalistic bastions. Um, and, and so I, I find that really interesting and hard, hard to divorce from any sort of political subtext, no matter how much Nolan may want. Um, so I like that aspect of Bane because it's obviously something very different than we have seen from Bane before and very different than we get with the Joker or Roz. Yeah, he, he may not have intended to be making a, a statement, a political statement, but I think it's in, I mean, my perspective is that it's, it's inescapable that he is. Jay, what do you think? I, I think it's pretty, you know, uh, undeniable, especially, you know, if you, I guess we'll call it the climate uh, around the time the movie came out, you know, there, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of these themes of, you know, like Bane's, again, like promises to the people and what he attacks and whatnot, you know, very much would have resonated, you know, again, with what was going on. Uh, and, you know, again, Tom Hardy, you know, he brings it. Uh, Tom Hardy in a comic book movie where his face is obscured and he speaks in a menacing voice. Like, I'm here for it. Um, Are we referencing another film? I'm referencing Venom. Oh, I won't really count that as a film, though. So. <laughs> All right, then. Um, no, yeah, I mean, you know, right. His right, face right, is not obscured in Venom. Well, when he has the, the, the Venom face on. Sure, yeah. I was, I was drawing a weak parallel uh, for the sake of keeping this Venom joke going. Um, it's going to be our best recurring gag over 10 years of doing this podcast. No doubt. Um, Jay's that, favorite you know, comic book film, Venom. And Jay doesn't, you know, have a score or a favorite scene in mind yet, yeah. despite knowing it comes every week. No, Tom Hardy, you know, uh, absolutely brings it for me in this role. Again, I think just to circle back to something uh, you guys said earlier about Christopher Nolan and, you know, kind of the impossible task of following the Dark Knight, you know, I think the, that, you know, following Heath Ledger as like, you know, the new big bad uh, in this trilogy, you know, uh, an impossible task. Um, and I think, you know, Tom Hardy, again, like 95% of his performance like really works for me. Obviously, you know, the voice can come across as like, silly sometimes or like you know you can't really understand what he's saying but again that, that's such a small percentage of it like right from the get-go i mean that that opening scene on the plane i remember the first time i saw that too and i remember you know my head just like spinning like oh wow like you know we this is again something totally new for the trilogy like you guys have said um and you know just really like you know when he when he uh stops his henchman from you know uh clipping in essentially to like escape the wreckage and he says no like you know they expect one of us in the fire and the man you know asks have have we started the fire and he says yes the fire rises like again chills every time you know he, the uh, music's yeah. amazing in that scene too yeah that, that uh, definitely helps and yeah you know tom hardy uh as bane you know fantastic love the take love what he did with it super memorable performance and on that note like i think as great as his performance is, I think he has a lot. Uh, he has a lot of reasons to thank the writers again because he gets so many memorable lines, like you were talking about earlier, Scott. Like that is one of the things that I think helps this villain stand the test of time along with the Joker, right? Because I mean, you can think of any number of, of Joker lines as well that that Heath Ledger had in the movie that just stick in your brain. But uh, I was surprised about how many Bane lines that I knew just 
even though I hadn't watched this movie in some time. Um, and so I think he, he has to thank the writers for making this villain also iconic. I mean, in addition to his performance, he has to thank the writers because um, they, they threw him a lot of bones here and, and he, you know, tore into them with his great performance. He can thank Chris and John Nolan. That's who you can thank. Yeah, no, I, I, guys, I think Bane is awesome, Jay. I'm really glad you mentioned the opening scene because it's one of those things where if you just turn this movie on TV, you would not immediately, and this is like what you came to, you not immediately know that it's a Batman movie, which I think is is great. It's hilarious. It's an amazing opening scene. Th- this feels like some, I, I feel like I'm like watching this opening scene. And I'm like, this feels just like so not what like not a Batman scene because you have these like people repelling from one plane to another and you know plane like plane jacking in midair. It's just like crazy, crazy scene that's awesome. And yeah, the fire rises, him saying that line. I think that immediately sets the tone for for the whole film of what you're gonna get from Bane's not just physical, I mean the physical performance that you see happening in that scene, but the uh the voice performance you're gonna get from Tom Hardy as well. And Look, like I, I think one of the reasons why there's so many memorable lines is like, yes, it's well written, but it's also how they're delivered. And I think the voice, you know, I, I, people make fun of the Batman, like the gravelly Batman voice from Dark Knight or Batman, even Batman Begins. Right. But I don't understand anyone complaining about this voice. I think the reason why so many of these lines are so memorable is because of the voice and the contrast, specifically the contrast between the voice and the physical nature of the performance. I think that's like, it's like critical to this Bane character. I think that there is this sort of digression between the, the presence that Bane has and then the voice that you hear when he speaks. I think it's like really important that you get this big contrast because it adds to the unsettling nature of this person. The it, it, honestly, it, it, in a weird way, it adds to the imposing nature of him as well, because it's this eerie voice, this really physically imposing presence. And you just have no idea what's going to come next with this character because you might be so off put just by this, again, this dichotomy of these two things. And I think overall, I, I don't know if that's actually the voice Tom Hardy did or if they were just modulating his voice, kind of like they do the Batman voice in post or not, but whatever they do, it, it works really well. And again, like I, I don't think this displaces Heath Ledger as you know the, one of the best villain performances of all time, but honestly, it's, it's, a, it's a second place performance that's not very far behind in my book. Yeah, when you think about how many superhero movies have a villain problem, like, wouldn't they kill to have, you know, even the second best villain from this trilogy as their their main villain in their movie? It's kind of kind of amazing. And and one of the reasons that this trilogy works so well is because they don't have the villain problem outside of the first movie, really. Yeah, they, they don't have a uh, they don't have the villain problem. And, and yes, maybe there's not sort of like these really super nuanced, you know, motivations that that bane has but he still feels like a nuanced character by the end of the film right like he you know he's this character who yes it's one-dimensional at, at first when you when you first meet this character because he just wants he he's like ross he just wants to destroy gotham right he has some interesting hooks to him because he has this physically imposing presence the voice etc but by the end you realize well actually wait there's actually a lot more going on with this character when you, you know when you do reach the final act of the film and his relationship with talia al ghul and, and you know his as her protector and then you know it being being in love with her i think that maybe the it's a little bit underdeveloped and and rushed at the at the end but it all feels you know there and it all feels nuanced and and maybe on maybe because it's like you know my fourth or fifth rewatch of the film that it feels more natural and feels more three-dimensional from start to finish but you know i think by the end you're getting that extra layers of nuance to the character that creates a lot of villain problems in, in superhero films all right guys 
I do want to give some light to supporting characters. I again sent you guys a, a list of people to choose from. If there's other people on this list that you you want to choose, like Brett Cullen, who you know I didn't realize Thomas Wayne was also a congressman. Who who knew? Uh, but yeah, no. I if there's any other supporting characters you guys want to mention, I think we can go around the horn here again and and talk about one character at a time. Jay, do you have a supporting cast member that you'd like to call out? Sure, I think the. The easy choice, at least in my book, uh, is Joseph Gordon-Levitt, right? You know, he uh, is, I mean, just is on screen a lot. And, like, you know, he, I think, like, you know, plays this, I don't know, like, scrappy cop, right, turned detective uh, really well. Who, you know, like, again, means well. And I don't know, like, I, I guess he's uh, both as the newcomer. I, like, I mean, he, he's a newcomer and I guess just feels like the most, like, grounded, you know, when, when you have a a hero slate of like Batman and Catwoman who again kind of maybe exist on a plane slightly above ours, you know, the way, you know, Blake even like engages in combat, you know, when he's uh, trying to figure out what's going on with all these like permits and the cement. And, you know, he like takes down uh, two of uh, Bane's henchmen, although not, you know, in a very graceful way, like it's, you know, again, scrappy. Uh, the bullet reflection is the, the bullet deflection off of the metal, truck or whatever was a particularly clever one although i don't know if he intended it <laughs> right um and yeah you know he uh again you know is given a lot to do and again you know by the i mean you know at least you know maybe not in terms of like range but you know in terms of like literal like screen time and presence and you know by the end uh like you said early uh, at the beginning you know you do feel good about the future of gotham you know given the fact that he'll be one of the people whose hands it stays in you know going forward Scott, anyone else you want to add to this or comment on Joseph Gordon-Levitt? I think that JGL is really good. I think he's a good foil to Gordon, really, because Gordon is kind of uh, jaded. And, you know, he, he's been sort of dragged into the mud uh, a little bit by his association with Batman, whereas, um, you know, Blake is he's this scrappy, idealistic copy you know he he thinks that he can be the the hope for gotham and i mean we we i think we think that too at the end of the movie but i i do really like him as a foil for gordon and they, they have that one um scene together about like you know you can't let your friends or whatever bring you down into the filth or um and and um and blake is like i think you're already uh, filthy enough your hands are plenty filthy or, yeah um which I think talk, you know, gets to their dynamic. I mean, I would say, I think Michael Caine probably gives his best performance of the trilogy um, here. I think that he has some really emotional scenes early on. Um, and, you know, this, this running theme that we have seen of his concern for, um, you know, his, his fatherly concern, right? Because he is the, the closest thing to a father figure that, that Bruce has his, his fatherly concern for um, Bruce and this double life. And it is, is the physical toll of being Batman eventually gonna wear Bruce down? I think it, it naturally resurfaces and is heightened because of how much time, you know, Bruce has spent away from the Batman character. So when he decides to to get back into being Batman, naturally that concern that Alfred has always had is you know heightened to the point where he says, "Forget it, I'm out. Like I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm not gonna." Watch you die, um, even if he ultimately regrets that. Right? I think that I. I think that's a really emotional moment to it. And I think Michael Caine sells that moment really well of him, um, you know, weeping at Bruce's grave there at the end and saying, I've abandoned you and, and or I abandoned you and all of that. I think that's, that's a very believable 
um, way to for, for for that character to go. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think he's you know he's excellent in all three films, but he's he has a little bit more to do here, and I think he does it well. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think it's probably the least amount of screen time he gets in any of the films. But he again, I agree that he has like these really emotional peaks in the or or valleys, whichever way you look at it here in in the film, and and he absolutely delivers in all, I would say all three of like the really emotional moments uh, that he has in the film. And uh, I, I don't know, I don't need to repeat everything you said, but yeah, I think those are probably the two standout, you know, supporting performances just to talk about a different one. I think Marion Cotillard being the other female character in the film is probably worth talking about. She plays Miranda Tate, who also turns out to be Talia Al Ghul, who is the daughter. She plays the sa- her same character from Inception. Can well, we, so can was, we just was, agree with that? Yeah, I was going to make that joke. That is, the, like, yeah. which 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 dream is she in here when she's in this in this film? Uh, because yeah, it feels like a very similar performance. I mean, I think you could argue that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance is even a little bit similar to uh, to Inception, but that's okay. And because Inception's you know one of the best movies of all time, so if you're going to repeat that performance, why not? So uh, don't look at me like that, Scott. Don't look one of your that. favorite movies of all time. <laughs> it is one of the best movies of all time. And I think that one, <laughs> the glare I'm getting right now. Uh, yeah. So I think it's a really spectacular um, role that it just, you know, again, I don't know if it's able to really, you know, live up because for, for this, like really like what, I don't know, like five, six of the movie it only feels like the last 20 minutes that you really understand what this role is, is that there's, you know, only a little bit going on. To the character overall and i i think that's necessary because nolan has to have a twist in his film and this is the twist right this is this is the plot twist in the final act that you discover that miranda tate is actually the daughter of ra's al ghul and that this this kid that they're talking about making this jump in the pit for all you know 30 40 minutes of the film that was talia al ghul and i think that that adds a really an interesting layer of complexity uh to the performance and you know does talia al ghul have a villain problem here I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but but she's not really the central focus of the film in terms of, of the villain for for most of it. And so I think that to have that sort of third act twist in, in her performance, I think is interesting. And I think when you rewatch the film, you, you kind of you, it's hard to see the threads of that moving in the final the moving in towards that final act. But I also think that speaks to the deception involved with playing a character like Talia al Ghul. It, it's not a character in which you can see what's going on before. Like it wouldn't really be Talia al Ghul if it was that way. And so I think Marion Cotillard is, is good enough in that. But I think that performance is, is just that. And it's all that is required is to be good enough. And it was never really going to be a standout performance. I don't think. Yeah. I, I, I've said my piece. I think she's doing the same thing. She, kind of does an inception and and that's about all she's asked to do it it is funny right that he adds three significant new cast members in this movie and it's all people who are in inception and hathaway was not an in inception the, i yeah i guess i wasn't thinking about Anne hathaway but th- three significant new cast members that he does add are all from inception who's oh tom hardy yeah gotcha mm-hmm. sorry i blanked you there for a second jay any thoughts on on marion cotillard yeah, I mean, I, I kind of touched on this last week, and I hope you won't hammer me too hard for it. Um, but I, I, yeah, I won't like, hammer you, know, you this week for it. I, yeah, I mean, you know, I her performance, because it's the same performance as Inception, right? And I, I told you how last week I was not really whelmed by it. I, I stand by that again this week. by it. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's fine. Like, I've accepted that this is part of the movie, but I definitely did spend a good chunk of it wondering what a movie without her would have looked like. Um, and well, yeah, you lose I mean, that you lose the depth of the Bane character, but maybe that doesn't do. matter all that much. 
Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, we, we, that would be, I feel like a whole episode on its own. So, you know, I won't open that can of worms, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's fine. I guess is all I have to say. The Talia al Ghul reveal is like, okay. In my book. Um, I feel like in rewatching it this time, I, I picked up on like a few very subtle clues that Nolan leaves along the way. Um, which I thought was fun. Which um, were? Well, there's uh, when Bruce comes back from the pit, you know, her her only line to him is do what's necessary, which is very like League of Shadows thing. Again, that's it's super like minute. Um, and then later when they're trying to find, uh, when Gordon and crew are trying to find the bomb and they go to the truck that they marked and he, you know, says like, that's not possible because it's not yeah. in the first one because she, you know, gave them yeah. a false that's, signal. That's the biggest giveaway, I think, probably in the, yeah. in the film, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it, it feels like something that's very much there. You can't, like, you can't be passively watching. You might just miss that. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. All, all in all, the Talia reveal, like, again, doesn't really do that much for me. Um, well, it's. It, I think it's hard to do much with this reveal and with this twist because it's just, like, not anywhere near the most important thing in the film. And I think all the things that you're, like, you're not invested in this character. You probably don't even really care about this character that much going into yeah. that into that moment and and everything else that you see in front of you is what you care about like you, you have Catwoman like right after that scene you have Batman and you have and you have Bane right there like those are the things you care about in this film right you don't care about Miranda Tate um and so that that twist is inevitably going to have less of an impact yeah I guess to you know uh wrap it up and put a bow on top my thoughts about her were very much uh what were said by Catwoman um, when Bruce is giving her the bat pod before, you know, the all out war breaks out at the end when, you know, she kind of snarkily says to him, Oh, you know, you're going to wage a war to save your stuck up girlfriend. And I'm like, yeah, why are you, you know, <laughs> waging a war to save your stuck up girlfriend? Like he's waging, unless his stuck up girlfriend is Gotham. I don't think he's waging the war. Well, for yes, I, again, I, I I'm, I'm just using that line to encapsulate my feelings about her. From, so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. The Russian ballet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. Finish what you're saying. No, no, I mean that was it. You know, I, it's just the way she felt about Miranda Tate. Selena Kyle did is, is very much how I felt about her. You know, you're you're Bruce's stuck up girlfriend, and you really shouldn't matter that much. Yeah, and arguably she uh, she probably didn't until she had the Talia Al Ghul turn. Yeah, and then and then she becomes the stuck up girlfriend. How about that? <laughs> yeah. A suck up ex-girlfriend, I think, to, fair to say at that point. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, I think we've talked about most of the stuff that I, I jotted down for the plot and the and the themes already. But one of the things that I think is, is more thematic and less plot driven throughout the whole film is just this notion of, you know, what uh, like like having to atone for your past sins and your, and the choices you made in the past and coming back around. I mean, we talked about several of those sins, right? When we talked about the Dark Knight, Scott, you mentioned about how like Alfred's letter you know, sorry, Rachel's letter, Alfred burning that like, that's going to come back around. Like he's going to have to reckon with that at some point. He's going to have to deal with the consequences of that. Same goes for Jim Gordon. And for that matter, Bruce Wayne and their decision to, you know, lie about who Harvey did end up being by the end of the dark Knight. And I think a lot of this film is, is kind of based on, and a lot of the relationships in this film are based on things that have happened in past movies, which for some that like, that adds an interesting element because I think you could say in the dark Knight that very little of that film relies on anything that happened in Batman begins. But this one, it feels like almost all of the character arcs that are returning kind of rely on, on that fundamental understanding of what was happening in the dark Knight. But I thought this was an interesting theme to develop out of that compared to the last one, which was, we talked about like, what are your moral, like how important are your morals? You have to, where do your morals stop and where do you just do what has to be done to, in order to 
to protect the things things that you care about. And it's interesting development of like, all right, you did the things that you had to do to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, but now here here you are eight years later and you have to reckon with that. Scott, we'll start with you first. What what did you think of this sort of you know founding theme of the film? And is there anything that you necessarily want to add on to what I was talking about there? I mean, yeah, I, I, like I think we talked about it when we talked about the Dark Knight. Like there is there is that feeling at the end of the Dark Knight, especially with you know the the deal that Gordon and um, and Batman and you know make regarding Harvey Dent. I mean that this is temporary, right? This is a this is a temporary fix to the problem, and in that regard, it works, right? Because crime goes way down. Gordon is really successful as. Uh, in, in his role as as commissioner and Batman doesn't even have to come out right like he, he can retreat into the shadows that's you know that's another major reason not just because of this agreement but another major reason why he doesn't um, have to resurface for those eight years is because you know Gotham doesn't necessarily need him that much anymore crime is crime is going going down but you know as soon as as soon as Bane um, arrives he he is needed one more time he is needed to to bring that hope to gotham and you know like like i said up front i think that is a major theme of what this movie is about is about you know who who is going to be gotham's hope is is there hope in gotham who is going to bring that hope and that's why you know again that's another reason why the portrayal of bane is interesting right because he talks as if he is going to be the person to bring that hope and the people the citizens of gotham seem to believe that he is and that's why they're you know marching in, in his favor as like a citizen army at the end of this movie i think those are just black cape prisoners though i don't i don't think those are citizens of gotham maybe i'm wrong there okay well either way um he he tries to to win over the citizens he tries to win them over right with this with this message of hope of we're going to throw out all of the people who have you know, been the reason why Gotham has sucked for so long, and yeah. we're gonna we're gonna create a new world order. We're gonna create a new Gotham. Uh, but really, all he wants to do is just just kill everyone, like Roz in the first movie. Um, and, and so that is why you know, again, that, that is why Batman has to resurface. That is why I think the the daylight darkness thing is interesting, right? Because he he ultimately wins the day in the daylight, um, and the fact that Batman comes out in the daylight he comes out to defend them in the daylight something that we really haven't seen that much of him doing before um signifies that hey he he is the hope and um he he had to do this one last time and you know maybe he won't be around anymore after this but um what he has done for gotham is to make them believe that they can pick up the pieces and um be be the city that he always believed that they could be in. Um, so yeah, I, I, that maybe it was a roundabout way of getting at what you were talking about, Scott. But I, I, thematically, that was what stuck with me um, as I watched the movie was the way that they follow up on that idea that there is this this small hope in Gotham, um, you know, despite how dark the films are, and you know, Batman's ultimate decision to come back one last time is because he still believes in that. Jay, what do you think about this this whole notion of um, you know that you're you're having to reckon with your past choices and and other films that we've seen? I mean, the reason it's tough for me, uh, I'll explain what tough means in a sec. Uh, is just you know at the end of the Dark Knight, right? You know, you have you have these choices. You has you have this choice or these choices. I guess if you include Alfred's, I'm mostly thinking about Bruce and Jim's at this point um, that have been made and 
you know, it's, it's very much like, okay, like, you know, they've, they've made their choice and like, this is what they had to do. And like, it worked. And, you know, you're left to wonder with, was it justified? And then this movie comes along. And again, in, in the case of Bruce and Jim's choice, like it very much turns out like it was not worth it. And like, they gave you like an answer because I mean, you know, both the fact that, you know, Jim Gordon, especially uh, at, at least on the, you know, in we see with his conversations with Blake, you know, it was very much tormented by all this, um, you know, both in that and then you know, the fact that he had like a speech written out, like, you know, he very clearly like, you know, feels the filth on his hands, right? So not only, you know, did you answer like, you know, whether or not like it was worth it, it didn't even work. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it was bold. It did work. No, I disagree with that. It worked. I mean, yeah, crime went down for eight years. Or whatever. Well, I mean, I, I guess work is more like a, you know, I, I think of I, I think of it not working because, you know, after eight years, like it, it caught up to you. And again, like all these men theoretically, like would have gone free upon the reveal. Um, and they, they ended up being freed because, you know, Bane broke them out. So maybe it's not entirely on him um, on Gordon. Right. But uh, I don't know, I guess from where I'm sitting, like, you know, it, it didn't end up working because. You know, not only, I guess, you know, in the end, the men got out and your secret got out and, you know, I guess, you know, added to the flames of like discontent, right? Yeah. With everything that's going on, you know, when Bane's very much, when Bane's giving that speech uh, as they're breaking people out of Blackgate, you know, the sentiment is very much like, you know, people like Jim Gordon will like screw you over. There's no sense of, you know, he did what he had to do. It's it feels like it all just imploded, right? And I think it was bold of the movie to take that stance. But you know, it uh, Scott Harvey just to like echo you know what you said about the ending of the movie, you know, taking place in the light. You know, I, I think it, it kind of gives us our answer to that whole point there, right? That you know you you very much have to, you know, if you're gonna win, you have to do it in the light. And so he did, and you know, we we got like a true. I guess, victory for Batman and hope and Gotham. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, like, again, there is the idea that victory is temporary. Like, I don't, I don't know at the end of the movie, if we believe, Oh, finally, there's going to be peace in Gotham now that Batman has done this, but right. He has, he, he, he came back when they needed him. And now in the future we have, you know, we have Robin, right. We have potentially a, a new hero that's going to defend Gotham. He, Gotham. He has paved the way for, the next phase, maybe in eight years, maybe in who knows how many years when things resurface again. Um, and, and so I think that's, you know, that's, that's his goal is just to bring peace for however short a time he, he can to Gotham. Well, if Chris Nolan is listening, it's been eight years. You can come out with another Batman movie if you want to. Um, no. I, so guys, I, I think I agree with what both you're saying, Jay. I think part of that thing or the, the direction the movie is taking that you're talking about, maybe this is just a pure semantic difference at this point. It's like, is the reckoning that you have to do with the choices that you make these temporary fixes, right? Like they solved crime for eight years in Gotham. But the reality is, is that he has like he, on his like that choice weighs on his conscience. The choice that they made to lie about who Harvey Dent was, to lie about who Batman was, has weighed on his conscience, and it's tormented him. His fa- his like family just moved out of Gotham altogether. I think that's something that kind of gets glossed over that he's essentially divorced. It feels like uh, because of the whole situation and and Batman has become this recluse, right? He's disappeared. Bruce Wayne has become this recluse as a part of you know, this decision. That, that's a more complicated thing than just the choice that they made around, around Harvey Dent, obviously, but that is a reality as well. And I think that, that Jim Gordon has had to reckon with that for a while. And then 
the fact that he'd written that speech and Bane uses that as justification to break out all these Blackgate prisoners is also part of reckoning with that choice and that decision to lie to people for some greater good that was kind of explored in, in the Dark Knight. And, and similarly, I think Alfred here is is you know, he's using this past decision that he's made with his relation as it relates to his relationship with Bruce to try, you know what, like I have now at the time I spared you pain, but it's been eight years and you're still living with that pain or you're still living with like the hope or the, or the despair. However you look at it, right. Of you were going to be with Rachel and I, and I can't live like, I can't live like this scene. You live like this anymore. And I have to reckon with that decision and I have to destroy my relationship with you because of a decision that I made that I can no longer live with. I have to, I have to clear that off my conscious. And I think that it's a really interesting way. It's a really interesting foundation for this film that ultimately is going to explore and, and be very different from the dark Knight to use two decisions that were you know fundamental to the discussion we had about the dark Knight, right? About like what Bruce's relationship with Rachel was and what Gordon and, and Batman's relationship was with Gotham. And I think that's a really interesting way to, to base this movie. And I think that it, 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 the movie does a lot with that. I think they, they really make the most of it. Yeah. And I think I, what I love about that last moment of, of Bruce and Alfred in the cafe is kind of just the acknowledgement on both of their parts that, Hey, you were, you were probably right. Right. Like yeah. that Al, Alfred, you were, you were probably right to do what you did with, um, with uh, with burning the letter and you know not not telling me about Rachel for for all this time, um, but Alfred kind of saying Bruce, you're probably right to bring Batman back one last time. Like maybe maybe I doubted whether you could do it or not, but well, that's certainly what it, you so. get in the scene with the scene in the graveyard, right? Like with Alfred, yeah. is that like mm-hmm. you know you were you were right? I abandoned you. I should have I should have had more faith or kept yeah. the faith. It's just kind of a like mutual tip of the cap, you know, there there at the end, which makes a already amazing scene even even better yeah and why don't let, let's that, that's the only place left to go i think with the discussion is the ending scene you get the cafe scene which i mean goodness gracious like probably one of the best scenes in the whole trilogy it's just an amazing scene and then i don't know is it in, in, in an ending that might be just as good like an actual final shot that might be just as good as the one from the dark knight as as batman rides the bat pod up through the tunnel is the platform rising with with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Blake on it, and then you just go to black with the Dark Knight Rises. I'm like, oh boy, this is where you have to end me? Why Why are you doing this to me? Why can't we have more? Jay, uh, you haven't had a chance to give your thoughts yet. Why don't, why don't you talk to us about it? No, I mean, you you captured it. You know, it uh, that ending shot, you know, or that those last, like, few minutes, yeah. I'll say, you know, uh, starting at, you know, uh, with Gordon reading... Uh, that bit at Bruce's funeral, cutting over, you know, Blake throwing his badge into the river. Reading a um, tale of two cities at Batman's funeral. I thought that was so funny. Yeah. 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 So there's that, you know, Gordon, uh, or rather Blake throwing his badge into the river, Morgan Freeman finding out about the autopilot and then Gordon yeah. finding the bat symbol or the bat light, I guess. Uh, you Repaired. Know, of, yeah. Yeah. All of that, you know, with again, Zimmer's score, like it, you know, I, again, I, I think given how, you know, well received and loved the Dark Knight was, you know, capping that trilogy, capping this trilogy, like, you know, was a near impossible task. And I, I think, you know, he he did it like right down to the very end of this movie, like is, is a very satisfying end to this trilogy for me. Yeah, absolutely. Scott, any other thoughts you want to give on? I know you talked about the cafe scene, but you want to talk about the scene with Blake? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that that's great. I mean, b- because I think it kind of cements this, like, we, we've talked about, we talked about it with the Last Jedi, right? We talked about it with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. There is kind of an anyone can wear the mask idea going on here a little bit. And I think totally. maybe the moment that exemplifies it the best, probably my favorite. I mean, I'll, I'm going to go ahead and play, 
claim it as my favorite moment of the movie and yeah. of the trilogy when he he reveals indirectly reveals to Gordon that that Batman that Bruce is Batman by talking about hey a hero it c- can be someone as simple as someone who puts a coat around you know a, a kid's shoulder when he shoulders when he needed it the most um, that's just awesome um, yeah. and so that I think is is part of the ending though obviously the you know the cafe scene and the the you know platform are are just icing on the icing on the cake. Yeah, and I think that we're maybe even not giving this film enough credit for doing going the direction of anyone can wear the mask because one of the recurring like mo- like themes of the film from Gordon is just like and and go- between Gordon and Blake is like well don't don't people deserve to know who Batman is? It's like they know who he is. He's the Batman. Like that's yeah. they don't need to know who the person is because they know that it's the Batman. And I think that that mm-hmm. is you know a really great thing to 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 touch on. Any last thoughts here before we enter the wrap up phase? Anyone? I love this trilogy. I don't know if we'll ever. So good. Uh, have something like this again i really hope we do but i'm i'm skeptical i still give a slight nod to the before trilogy if we're talking about greatest trilogies but yeah. uh this one is very close second yeah a different kind of romance maybe um <laughs> yes all right guys favorite scene we know scott's already jay what's yours it's close uh but i have to i think i'll give it to the pit you know the especially the the few minutes with again bruce you know talking to the doctor and then making the climb uh, you know, without the rope again, you know, that the moment where the bats come out, you know, every single time, you know, I'm just shaken. And it's, it's, uh, I'll always be that 16 year old kid in the theater on opening weekend. Uh, when I see that scene, it's great. Yeah. For me, it's a, it's a toss up for uh, a couple different scenes. I'm going to talk about the one that it didn't it just, just beneath my favorite scene, but the one where he, you know, Batman has returned, he saves Gordon and all the men on the ice and he lights up the bridge with the bat signal with the fire. I mean, that's a what, like, totally unnecessary mo- moment for him to do, but I guess it's about giving hope, right? To go back to your point, Scott, earlier about giving hope to people, right? Like if there's a shred of hope left in Gotham and ba- Batman can be that then, you know, that, that's what he's doing in this really grandiose display uh, of his return. Uh, but I think my favorite scene is just the last one, right? Like you talk, Scott, I mean, you, you talked about how it's the, it's one of those kind of penultimate scenes that does it for you. And I think it's just that actual last, the last moment where you have, um, you know, John, John Blake discover the bat cave after he gets this package from Bruce and excavate, like, I don't know, excavate, spelunks it. I don't know quite the right way to describe it is, but then, like discovers it and and gets on the platform and has it rise and you realize that you know Bat- batman's time has ended but uh, gotham still needs a protector maybe and then the and we'll need one in the future because these fixes are, are temporary they're not permanent um but it, it's really satisfying it's really really satisfying into the trilogy and i don't know whether or not it's as satisfying a conclusion of a series as Avengers Endgame, but it it is it does not deserve the facial expressions that Jay was given was giving when when you said that because <laughs> I don't think it's actually incredibly far off far off from that. I wouldn't say incredibly, but I, no, I'm sorry, different different levels here. But yeah, they're doing I'll, different. They're doing I'll different. Far with me about that off mic. I certainly <laughs> like the ending of this film better. I mean, I I like the ending with with Cap and and is it. Peggy, yeah, Peggy, at the end of Avengers Endgame, but not quite as inspiring, I think, as as seeing Christian Bale and Anne Hathaway for me together. But that's it's different. I've never been as smitten with Cap as other people have been. All right, guys, let's put a let's put a let's put a score on it. Jay did not flinch too much at getting asked his favorite scene this time, but let's see if he if he flinches at all with his score. Jay, what are you giving this one out of ten? Nine Oh, okay. 
Not bad. No flinching. It's a it's a it's a great movie. Um, not quite nine point five, but nine point zero. Nine point zero. All right, Scott. What number, just short of ten, are you giving this one? <laughs> nine point seven. Telltale did the Catwoman better, but other than that, amazing film. Yeah, this is this is a great film, guys. Nine point two for me. Uh, absolute standout. I did not expect to to be this hot on on this one at the rewatches. Pretty much what we all said at the at the beginning here when we were talking about our expectations and the fact that it surpassed it is um it's pretty remarkable that any Nolan film can surpass my expectations for it at this point. Uh, but we'll see if that happens next week uh, as well because that should do it for part eight of the Nolan countdown. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at, at @mediaplugpods. Subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Our Patreon has a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out, and you can receive various rewards on how much you're willing or able to donate. We'd appreciate it so much if you contribute even only at the $1 level. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check it out for yourself and pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed as well as subscribed and shared so that we continue to reach a broader audience. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for listening to part eight of the Nolan Countdown. Don't forget to check out all the other podcasts in the Some Like It's Got feed, including our latest episode of Some Like It's Got, as well as Champ's Lunch. And we'll be back next week with part nine of the Nolan Countdown. That is the penultimate episode when the three of us will be revisiting, or actually I should say two of us will be revisiting, and Scott Harvey will be watching for the first time Chris Nolan's attempt at a space opera, Interstellar. Until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.